0: My son is going to be one of those people from out of state who's coming to um, Wyoming tomorrow to meet me um, to watch the eclipse. And I have some friends who actually are here in Sheridan leaving with all kinds of uh, astronomical equipment to watch the, the um, eclipse. So I can assure you Colorado's coming to Wyoming tomorrow because I know some of the people who are coming up here. Uh, yeah, like you said, Brad. What a privilege to think that God has arranged this thing. In fact, uh, the woman, she's going to be here in the second service. She said when she was a child, she loves astronomy. And she says, when I was a child, I I looked at 2017, there's going to be an eclipse comes through the States and I'd like to see it. That's years ago when she was a child. She has now three children. And finally, the day has come tomorrow. And that calendar is pretty well set. I think if you'd been an astronomer 5,000 years ago, you could have figured it out because that's how orderly God's universe is. It's amazing what he's put together. Um, As you see again on the screens, we're getting near the end of a series going through this long letter from the Apostle Paul called the Letter of Ephesians, which is primarily about two things. One, that we are, as a Christian, if we're a Christian, we're in Christ. That means What he did on the cross applies to us. What he's going to inherit applies to us. His dignity in the universe applies to us. His grace is given to us. And because of the fact that we are in Christ, he's also in us, which means now we live differently because Christ is in us. And we live to resemble him. We live to represent him. We live because Christ is in us. So we're near the end, and today we're going to be in the sixth chapter in your Bibles. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9, that's where we'll be today. But I thought I'd start with a couple of the most iconic musicians in the world. Um, These are they. Probably there are no two musicians that you can think of that are more iconic over the last 50 years than John Lennon and Bob Dylan So much so that just last year, Bob Dylan, as you know, received the Nobel Prize for literature. His songwriting is so well regarded that they gave him the the Nobel Prize. What you may not know is that uh, these two people had a little bit of uh, interaction, which is very, very important. Bob Dylan, at a point in his life, declared himself to be a Christian. I don't know if you know that. It's called his, um, his uh, gospel or his Christian period. During that time, he released two albums of gospel music. And in his gospel music, one of the songs he wrote received a Grammy Award, and it is entitled, Gotta Serve Somebody. I don't know if you know it. Here's how it goes I'm not going to sing, I'm just going to sing. <laughs> You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, John Lennon, one of the best-known musicians in the history of the world, he heard that song, and he did not like it at all. And so just before he died, he wrote another song in response to Bob Dylan's song, You Gotta Serve Somebody, and his was called Serve Yourself, and here's how it went. You say you found Jesus Christ. He's the only one. You say you found Buddha sitting in the sun. You say you found Muhammad facing to the east. You say you found Krishna dancing in the streets. Well, there's something missing in this God Almighty stew. And it's your mother. Your mother. Don't forget your mother, lad. You've got to serve yourself. Ain't anybody going to do it for you. You've got to serve yourself. Ain't, ain't nobody going to do it for you. Now, though, that represents two very different worldviews. In fact, they clash with each other. Bob Dylan said, I don't care who you are. I don't care how rich you are. If you think that you're, you're, you're an independent agent and you're free, you're nuts because everybody is serving somebody. John Lennon said, no way. The only person you've got to serve is yourself. 2,000 years ago, Jesus weighed in on the subject. And he called us servants. And in fact, this is what he said. And this is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, nor to serve himself, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now if in fact we are in him and he is in us, then by definition we're servants. We're called to live our lives to serve somebody, somebodies, somebody out in this world. So today we're going to look at a text of Scripture, which is part of what I mentioned last week, which are called the household codes, which are all under this banner, which you find in chapter 5. This verse is the end of the section, which talks about that we as Christians are to be imitators of God. Since God is a God of love, we walk in love. Since God is a God of light, we walk in light. Since God is a God of wisdom, we are to live wisely. And the last facet of living wisely is we are those who submit to one another because we reverence Christ. You could put in that, we serve one another. Serve means you live your life for the benefit of another person. That's the banner over it all. Now, what we encounter in the Bible are what are called these household codes. I mentioned them last week. I'm going to quote some of them today. Household codes were a device that was common in the Roman world in which the Bible was written. They were codes that told the people how they were supposed to behave in order to preserve order in the society. you got to have order. All cultures have them to some degree. They had them back then. And so the Apostle Paul then writes household codes, but his household codes, which are found in four passages actually in the Bible. They're found in Ephesians. They're found in Colossians. They're found in Titus. And they're found in First Peter. Four times he writes household codes. Now, household codes in the ancient society were written to wives. This is, husbands, this is how you should demand that your wife treats you. They are written to fathers. Fathers, this is what you can expect that your children will do to you. How How they'll respect and obey you. And they're written to masters. Masters, this is what you can expect of your servants. That's what the household codes in the Roman world stated. But now the Apostle Paul is going to write household codes and they're very different. First of all, they are not just secular. This is how you're supposed to behave because this is the way it's going to work in Rome and Greece. Paul always links it to something theologically. He says, this is how you should behave because something having to do with God. In the household codes of the Roman society, they were always patriarchal. The patriarch, the pater familias, the father was in charge of everything, had the right of life and death for his whole family, including his wife. The Bible says, no, there is one that is above the father, and that is the heavenly father. There's no human father that is above the family because that human father is responsible to the heavenly father. So everything is under the banner of not of human fathers, but of the heavenly father. The household codes in the Roman world were one-sided. Wives, submit. Children, obey. Slaves, you better obey or you're dead. That's what they were. They were all one-sided. The Apostle Paul's household codes are two sided. Wives, this is what you're supposed to do. And husbands, this is what you're supposed to do. Children, this is how you're supposed to behave toward your parents. But parents, this is how you should behave toward your children. (laughs) No, that's crazy. No, parents can do whatever they jolly well please. Paul said, No, you can't. Remember, we're Christians. You don't do whatever you jolly well please because you have a father in heaven. And then it says, and this is stunning, because we, from most uh, estimates, at least one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. He said, masters, this is how you must treat your slaves. They go, what? This is revolutionary. You see, the purpose of the household codes For the Roman people was to maintain the status quo. But the purpose of God's household codes was to protect and enhance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are absolutely radical. And that's why Christians got in lots of trouble. Because the ethic, the morals of Christians were so radically different than the culture. They didn't know what to do with them. And they were a a threat to the moral order of the Roman society which was completely patriarchal. So last week, we we dealt with the subject of wives and husbands. This is uh, some background. Marriages were typically based on economic considerations. Wives were often teens who married much older men. They were the property of their husbands. Marriage was not meant to join two lovers... It was a union for the raising of legitimate children to keep the family line going. Women existed to please the men around them, and a husband could do with his wife or wives whatever he wanted. Women had no voice in the city. They could not testify in court because they were considered unreliable. Some were educated, most were not. They, can you imagine, they rarely joined their husbands and friends for meals, which is where most of the important conversations happened. Can you imagine a family meal today? And the wife is in the kitchen cooking, but you do not sit with the family when you eat. That's what, what, what it was like. And this is what Demosthenes, he's a Greek or- orator. Um, uh, well, I, I, forget, well, I missed it. Well, I missed it. Let me tell you, this is what he said. This is a, one of the Greek statesmen. He said this, quote, Mistresses, we keep for the sake of our pleasure. Concubines, for the daily care of our persons. But wives, to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. Very rarely in the Roman writings do you ever find the word love used with relationship to husbands and wives that's love a wife love a husband why would you do that that's not their purpose their purpose is to carry on the family line and then all of a sudden paul comes along and says husbands love your wives wives see to it that you respect your husband it's a revolutionary concept in fact the bible says no This business about mistresses and concubines, that has no place in Christianity. We are called by God to love the spouse, singular, that God gave to us. Not multiple people at all. And so the two responsibilities that are summed up in this last verse of the household code to husbands and wives is this. Each one of you, he's talking to the males who who are married, You must love your wife as you love yourself. And the wives see to it that you respect your husbands. And so both of them are called to submit to one another, but in slightly different ways. The husband, you demonstrate your love for your wife by sacrificing yourself for her well-being. That's what it means to love And wives, see to it that you respect your husband in this lofty role he has, not to be a domineering person, but rather someone under you who gives his life and sacrifices himself for your well-being. That's how a marriage is supposed to work. And so those are the first household codes that he gives with regard to husbands and wives. But now he's going to turn to parents and children. Now... This sounds so so like us, but this is 2,000 years ago. Listen. In many sectors of Roman society, people did not desire marriage or children, both for economic reasons and for the bother involved. The situation was so bad toward the end of the first century B.C., This is under Caesar Augustus, the one who was emperor while Jesus was born. He passed laws that were forcing people to have children because they weren't having children. They didn't want to, you know, upset their beautiful bodies or something like that. I don't know what it was. The emperor Augustus passed laws to encourage marriage and children with monetary rewards. I've got the names of the the, the documents um, that it was. It penalized unmarried and childless couples, particularly through restricting their inheritance rights. The situation got so bad in that society 2,000 years ago that they had to give financial incentives for people to have children. There are countries in the world doing this today. Did you know that? Because in many Western countries, also including Japan and others, The birth rate is too low for the country to exist in the future. And so they're having to use some monetary ways to try to get people to have children. That's the same way it was in Bible times. This is not something new. It happened back then. Moreover, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, the pater familias, that's the father, essentially had the power of life and death over the members of his household. He could decide if he wanted his wife dead or alive or his children dead or alive. And this is is not in the legal system. This is just the right of the father. Now, that's the culture. Now, let's see what God said. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, in this section, the Apostle Paul is going to give children four reasons why they should obey and honor their parents. Now, let me ask, a show of hands, how many children do we have here in the audience right now? Oh, thank you. I'm trying to trick you. Let's try it again. How many children do we have in the audience here? Thank you. We're all children. And by the way, When you see this commandment, which is derived, the the next part, from the Ten Commandments, God is not primarily speaking to children, little ones. He's speaking to adults. How do we know? We know that because of the way that Jesus explained this commandment. With regard to the Pharisees who had passed these traditions, which enabled people with a godly excuse, quote-unquote to neglect the honor given to their parents. And Jesus says, this is not what God intended. They had passed laws which enabled a person to go to the synagogue and say, oh, all of my possessions belong to, to God. And therefore, you did not have to use your money to help your elderly parents. And you could use it all for yourself. And when Jesus heard that, he was furious. He says, you're Traditions have completely contradicted the very word of God. So he uses that commandment about honoring your parents. This is not little ones who are in Sunday school now. This is for us. Do you honor your father and mother? So, here we are. This is all of us, children. Now, obey. Here, specifically, he's teaching to those who are under the authority of a father and mother. Obey is a stronger word than submit. That means, this is brilliant, do what they tell you. Okay, that's really a great definition. Do what they tell you. Now, are there limits to obedience? Of course, the Bible identifies them. There are basically two limits to obedience. If someone tells you to do something that God has prohibited or prohibits you from doing something that God has commanded, you must disobey. Other than that, children, obey your parents. Why? Well, in the Lord means you are in Him. You're a Christian. That's the first motive as a Christian. And then it gives a second one. For this is right. That means it's part of natural law. You cannot find philosophers. You cannot find religious leaders. You cannot find people in any position of great understanding throughout the history of the world who do not recognize that there must be an order between parents and children in which children obey their parents. It's right. It's just obvious. Every society, every philosopher, every religious leader has said this. It's right. It's morally right. It's part of natural law. First, you're a Christian. Secondly, it's part of natural law. Then honor your father and mother. That comes from the Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment in which God gives, attaches a promise. Here's another reason. God says, if you do this, there's a consequence that comes to you, and it's good. Here it is. Quote, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth He's writing this originally to the people of Israel who are on their way to the promised land. And he says, honor your father and mother. It will be one of the ways that you will enjoy a good life in the land to which God is going to send you. It, it's, th- 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 there are good fruits from obeying and honoring your father and mother. It's good. It, it's going to bring good things to you, generally speaking. And then he says, oh, then he says, you will enjoy a long life on the planet earth so he gives us four reasons i i think you 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 see them he says you you do this obey your parents because of who you are you're a christian that's part of what it means to be a christian why do it well because it's part of natural law it's the way the world works why do it well you do it because there's reward involved in doing this and why well because it pleases the lord you want to please Him? Now, Christian children, um, we are bigger children here today in this service, most of us, but obeying your parents is a good deal. It really is. I mean, it's going to help you out in lots of ways, and besides, it's going to reflect who God is and who you're supposed to be as a Christian. There are many good things about it. Um, now, this is where this is going to... the. Paul's commandments are going to diverge significantly from his society because now he's going to turn his attention to fathers. Now fathers, as I said, had had power. This is, um, listen to what it said. Fathers in the Greco-Roman world determined whether a newborn baby had the right to live or die. And many baby girls in particular were abandoned to die. Fathers could and did sell their children, especially girls, into slavery. They could punish them as harshly as they wished, work them hard, and even put them to death. This is in the, um, the Apocrypha. This is Ecclesiasticus. A father, quote, A father who loves his son will whip him and beat him often while he is still a child. A few verses later, a father should not pamper his son, play with him, or share in his laughter. That's the society. And by the way, Ecclesiasticus, that's the Jewish religious society. So here... Coming from both Roman and Greco-Roman society as well as the religious society, these are the norms. Fathers, don't play with your kids. Don't laugh with your kids. Hit them a lot. Okay. Into that milieu speaks the Apostle Paul. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Here's in Colossians, also the household codes. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. God's word admonishes fathers to gently shepherd their children. Why? Because a child's nature is tender. Because a child is prone to become bitter. Because a child can easily become discouraged. Because what a child needs is discipleship, not harsh discipline. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. What does exasperation and embitterment look like? Here's what it looks like. Making irritating or unreasonable demands. Expecting a little child to behave as an adult. They don't know how to do that. Saying one thing as a parent and doing another yourself. I can't tell you how many of my, the people I grew up with have thrown away the Christian faith. And I know part of the reason why. Because I knew their parents. Their parents had really nice Sunday faces and they did things in the church, but at home they were very different people. They were different people at home and in church. And the people in the church didn't see that. But their children did. And as their children grew up, they said, you got to be kidding. I am not following this kind of hypocrisy. I thank ye God that I was not one like that. I can hardly I don't think I can remember one instance where my parents do what I say, not what I do. You've heard that line. Never did that. My parents were very consistent with what they said they did, and they didn't do it something different. They didn't, they weren't hypocritical. And that does a lot to help a child. A lot. Always blaming the children. You can find every fault, but no blessing. By the way, you can have an IQ of about three to find faults with people. If you're a critic, and that's the basic of basis of the way you approach people, I tell you, you are an ignoramus. I'm telling you that. You know why? Because to find faults takes no intelligence whatsoever, no spiritual maturity, and zero wisdom. Faults are easy to f- spot. And you can really spot them in your kids. And when you make that the focus of your child's interactions with your child, well, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you're going to destroy that child. You're going to embitter that child. You're going to make that child angry. What about blessing them? The proportion of blessing to to, um, blaming should not be even equal. There should be far more blessing than blaming. Disciplining inconsistently or unfairly. We've all probably, as parents, been guilty of that. That will hurt a child, though we do it. And when we do it, what do we do to to deal with it? Ask for forgiveness. That's the best way to go. Exhibiting favoritism or overindulgence. Look what favoritism has done in the Bible. Look at the patriarchal families of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Look at what it did. It's horrible. Here's some more. Issuing threats or promises that we don't keep. If you do that again, I'll kill you. Well, I hope you're never going to keep that one. But we do that kind of thing. Or we'll, we'll do this for you, and then you never keep your promise. Demeaning a child's concerns. When you grow up, that will mean nothing to you. Well, it means a lot to them as a child making no alliance for a children's inexperience or immaturity, or responding with harshness or cruelty, humiliating them, basically interacting with just sarcasm or ridicule, fault-finding without edifying, or living through your children. Unfortunately, we live in a culture today in which Children obeying their parents isn't very common. There was a British man who came to the United States for the first time, and, and uh, after he had been here for a while, someone asked him, well, what do you think about the United States? And he said, well, I like it. He said, but there's one thing that surprises me. He says, I'm so surprised by the level to which um, parents obey their children. And I think that's true. The extent to which parents obey your children. That's not what the Bible says. In this society today, children, especially teenagers, are almost expected and certainly encouraged in our society to be disrespectful and rebellious. That is not what God wants. So those are God's household codes to parents and to children. And probably we've seen ourselves in that. Well, he turns last of all to... um, um, Slaves and and masters. Um, Now, this is one that we have to be slightly careful about, but not too much. Because when you see the word slave as an American, you immediately think of what happened in this country. That is not slavery in the Bible. Slavery in our country was largely racial. Slavery in Bible times was zero racial. There was no racial component. Slavery in our country is people that were stripped against their will under horrifying, humiliating circumstances brought to this nation and treated like dirt. That is not what slavery in the Bible was. They're not the same. How did you become a slave in Bible time? There were several ways. You became a slave through birth. If your parents were slaves, you were slave. You became a slave through your parents selling you into slavery. Why? Because they were broke. That's why they did it. People became slaves in Bible times because they became captives in war. Or the most common way is you couldn't pay your debts. Can you imagine if that was us today? If you couldn't pay your debts, you had to be a slave. That's the way it was. Um, Many times, people chose to be slaves to better their lot in life. You think, what? Why would anyone do that? Well, you see, in in Roman society, slaves did not do the, the menial work. Slaves did all of the work. Many of them had oversight and management positions, and oftentimes slaves were better educated than their masters. Slaves could own slaves. Most slaves could buy themselves out of slavery, and most did by age 30. They didn't have long to live, anyways. But so slavery in Bible times was not like us. There, there was not a slave class as we know, and there were laws that prevented the gross abuse of slaves. Why would you want to abuse a slave who is your means of making money? They wouldn't do it. And so when you see slaves and masters, what we should see in this text of Scripture now is employees, those who are the workers, and employers, those who are the bosses. And here's what it says. By the way, this is just a picture of, of slaves. Slaves were, um, many of the, the teachers were slaves. They were well-educated, some of them. Not, not all, of course, but some. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Now, it's one thing to obey somebody with an insincere heart. You know, you can put on the faith... You know, it's a nice smile. You hate every minute of it, but you do what they tell you because you don't have any other choice. But behind their back, you hate their guts because no. Obey, serve as you would obey Jesus, because you know what he's going to say. In truth, your master is not that human being. Your master is Jesus, and he's a good one. This, obey them. Not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from your heart. Do you see where the focus is here? The focus is on the attitude of your heart with which you work for somebody. Now, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone For whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. Now, this next text of Scripture I'm going to show you is one of my favorite. It comes from Peter. Look at this one. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, this is the line that kills me. Those who have believing masters. Now, what are you likely to do if you have a Christian who is your boss? Well, you know what you do. You take special liberties. Hey, I'm the same level as they are. I can do whatever I want. Who are they to tell me what to do? That's our attitude. That couldn't be farther from God's. Look what he says. Those who have believing masters... Are not to show less respect for them. You see, our tendency as human beings is if we have a believer who is our master, our boss, our employer, our manager, we show them less respect. After all, I sit in a row ahead of them in First Baptist Church. No, it says, do not show them less respect because they are brothers. Instead, you are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. This is First Timothy, by the way. So what does he say? If you are so privileged that you have a Christian manager, boss, employer... If you're privileged, you should redouble your efforts to work hard. Why? So you can make them rich. So that you have the privilege of making your boss, your manager, your employer successful. Now, where do you find that attitude in this world? We're always looking for an out. We're always looking for our entitlement. We're always looking for a way where we can find the loophole so we don't have to work as hard. And God says, no, it's the exact opposite. If you're a Christian, you work wholeheartedly, and if you have the privilege of having a Christian boss, you have an opportunity given by God that you can enrich their success in business. Do it. Do you see how how weird the Bible is? I mean, it's like the weirdest stuff you could ever imagine. That's weird. You don't ever see that on planet Earth. But that, we're not here for planet Earth. We're here for eternity. That's how a Christian lives. Because remember, submit yourselves to one another out of the reverence for Christ. We are here to serve. We're here to make other people's lives better. That's who we are. Jesus did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what it means to be a Christian. Well, masters aren't getting off the hook. Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven... And there's no favoritism with him. What are some of the implications? Well, masters, by the way, I think you got the the point. I think you got it clearly. You better treat the people who are under you. If you're a manager, you're an employer, you're a boss, you're an owner, treat them well. What is the implication of this? First of all, we are not called by God to be clones of our culture. We are called by God to be countercultural. We do not just follow the norms of our culture. We follow the norms of heaven, and as such we will find ourselves to be to run against the grain of our culture. We're called to be counterculture. These texts of scripture that we've looked at today in the household codes are specifically designed and told to the Christian church. These are not to be applied by us to our society. That's not to whom they were given. And that's why we we should not, as you're going to see in the next slide, we don't read other people's mail. We don't take what God said to us and point our finger at the society and say, you should do this. We should say, no, this is what God told us to do. Bob Dylan got it right. We gotta serve somebody. You could serve the devil, or you can serve the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. The truth is, submission is our mission. That's who we are. We're not to read each other's mail, but the quality of our home life reflects on the gospel. The way we live our lives is going to show people, and not just our lives, our homes are one of the best testimonies we have of what the gospel is all about, what Jesus is all about. The valuations that we have are not the same as our society. We don't see each other as male and female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, because the mystery is that God has put us together in one body. We reject the valuations of society which put people into pigeonholes or hierarchical categories because as the phrase goes, the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. We're all in the same boat. And then authority needs to be divined in terms of loving responsibility. If God puts you in a a place of authority, whether you be a husband or a wife or a parent or an employer... Your task is to be responsible for those people in a loving way. Um, This is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, When home is ruled according to God's word, angels might be asked to stay with us and they would not find themselves out of their element. They'd be pleased to live in our homes with us. Just this week, I was... I turned on the television and I was listening to. It was a well-known talk show host, and uh, as she was getting a little older, someone asked her a question, and she said this: She said, "One of the great benefits of being older is you can do whatever you please." I thought, "Huh? You know what that's called? That's called paganism. That's what it's called. You've gotta serve yourself. But there's an alternative. as Christians, we're called to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and one another. and there's no possible better way to live your life because the rewards are incredible, both here and throughout eternity. Heavenly Father. May your Holy Spirit help us to be people like our precious Lord Jesus Christ who did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of that many. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me and now may God bless you. May the Holy Spirit empower you. May Jesus guide you. May God the Father rule over you as we leave this place and particularly in our households reflect our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you.